Do you make plans for the future? Are you someone that's known as a planner? You know, a good plan can make all the difference for, for your vacation, for that wedding that's coming up, for your career development. I've been talking with my own oldest son about kind of his plans for how his career, you know, is working out. It can, a good plan can even be important for walking into a difficult conversation with a friend. Plans give us a sense of control. And when, when we feel like we're in control, what happens? We are more confident going into whatever situation that we're going into. And that kind of builds on itself, right? When, when our confidence is rewarded with success, what happens? We put that much more emphasis on our plans. We plan more. We plan better because plans seem to really work. I was struck by this years ago when my future in-laws were, um, were planning our wedding. Adrian and I were talking about this just this morning. I've made sure that this was an okay story to tell. <laughs> At one point, we we're talking about the weather, and you know how weddings are. You, you want the weather to be perfect on a wedding day. We weren't doing much outside, but still, you, I mean... The bride's in this beautiful dress, and all these people are showing up. You want it to be beautiful. But I, I think I asked at one point, so, but what are we going to do? What are the plans if it rains? And my future mother-in-law replied, it's not going to. <laughs> and you know what? She was right. Now, I don't think my mother-in-law is unusual in that regard. People kid me that I have a plan for everything when it comes to the church. And I just want to affirm that technically that is not true. But not for lack of trying. In the church, we make all sorts of plans. In our Christian lives, we make all sorts of plans. I'm convinced that often, though, we use a different word for it. We, we talk about things like obedience or faithfulness or being biblical. We set out to follow God's plan. And because it's God's, we are confident of its success. But the question I want to ask this morning is, is that where our confidence should rest? What happens to our faith when, when we're obedient and faithful, when we feel like we are following God's plan, but then things don't go according to plan? Did we have the wrong plan? Or was our confidence in the wrong place? We're going through the book of Esther here this winter. And in our text this morning, we are confronted with the question of where our confidence rests and what that confidence means for our obedience. So turn with me, if you would, to Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided, those black Bibles in the pews and chairs, this is found on page 536. uh, Sorry, 436. 436. Esther chapter 5. Let me just read the first verse. Now I'm going to set the scene. Esther chapter 5, verse 1. 
On the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. So so here's the scene. It refers to that third day. Esther has just finished fasting for three days, along with her own ladies-in-waiting, and indeed, along with all of the Jews of Susa. And she's been fasting and praying in preparation for this step of risky obedience that she's about to take. She is about to put her plan into action, a plan to appeal for her people's deliverance, a plan to save her people from certain destruction. But as we go through this chapter, what we're going to discover is there are other plans afoot. Esther's not the only one with a plan. In fact, we're going to see two plans here. This is kind of the outline of the sermon. We're going to see two plans. We're going to see Esther's death-defying plan, and we're going to see Haman's death-dealing plan. And the chapter is going to end, and I just want to warn you in advance, it ends on a cliffhanger. Which plan is going to work? But what that cliffhanger does is it confronts us. It confronts us with where we have placed our confidence. Is it in our plans, our obedience? Or is our confidence in God and his providence? All right. First, let's look at Esther's death-defying plan. Esther 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor in his eyes. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. What is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom will be given to you. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. The king said, hurry and get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom will be done. Esther answered, this is my petition and my request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. All right, with the three days of fasting over, right, Esther, Esther is now following through on the commitment that she made to Mordecai. She, she puts on her royal clothing. I'm, I am sure that her hair was perfect, that the makeup was top-notch. She looked her best. And then she goes and she takes her place unbidden in the inner courtyard facing the palace, the palace where the king is sitting on his throne. Where she stands means that she is in full view of the king. He can't miss her. And as readers, we're, we're kind of on the edge of our seats, given what we heard in the, in the previous chapter, right? Will the king kind of fly into an rage at this, at this unbidden and unwelcome intrusion and, and have her executed there on the spot? Will he maybe just ignore her, which would leave her to the same fate of execution? 
Or will he welcome her? Will he extend that scepter in mercy? You know, archaeologists have discovered some, some scenes uh, that, that, that depict kind of what Esther would have been looking at because these Persian kings, as they sat on their throne with their royal scepter right behind them, was a eunuch with an axe ready to execute swift justice. That's what Esther saw. But the author doesn't leave us in, expe- in suspense very long, does he? No, the king likes what he sees. We're told Esther gained favor in his eyes there in verse 2. And he extended his scepter to her and allowed her to a- approach him. You know, this is the fourth time in the book of Esther that we're told she gained favor with those around her. The, the first three times, you remember, we're back in, in chapter 2, and it was, it was that gaining of favor with those around her that kind of catapulted her into this position of queen of the Persian Empire. Now, though, on this fourth occasion, resplendent in her royal robes, she is addressed for the very first time as Queen Esther by none the less than the king himself. I think the context is significant. She clearly at this point has gained, maybe even regained, because remember she hasn't, been, she hasn't been asked for in at least 30 days. She has maybe even regained the favor of the king. When? As she steps out in bold and risky faith because she actually fears God more than the king. One commentator that I read this week noted that it's only now, as she identifies with God's people, that she's finally fully invested with all the royal dignity of Queen Esther. And what's clear is that this favor wasn't, wasn't curried through the fear of man. No, it was, it was given to her because of her fear of God. And Christian, let's be really clear on this point. That's the only kind of favor that's worth having. A favor that is given by God because we fear him more than we fear men. So I wonder this morning, even though I don't think this is the main point of the passage, it's just worth asking, are you guilty of seeking the favor of men because you fear them, what they might do to you, what they might be able to do for you, rather than seeking the favor of God because you fear God even more. You know, here's the thing about fearing God. There is no guarantee that if you fear God, God will give you favor in this world. For, for every Daniel, there's a Jeremiah. For every Joseph in Pharaoh's court, there's a Joseph in Pharaoh's prison. For every Esther, there's a John the Baptist. But this much is certain. When we win the world's favor on the world's terms, we are slaves to the world. We are captured by them to do their bidding 
because their favor is conditional upon us keeping it according to their terms. But friends, when we're given the world's favor on God's terms, we have overcome the world. What would it look like for you as a Christian this week to live in the fear of God like Esther whether you have the favor of men or not. Well, as I said, this is not the main point of the chapter. If we were writing this, I think at this moment, we, we would give kind of an extended treatment to the, the flood of relief, the rush of emotions that, that, that came into Esther as, as her life was spared, as she was able to touch the tip of the king's scepter. But true to form, the author does not do any of that, which is just a reminder, again, this is not a psychological treatment of Esther. Esther's main role in this is not to serve as, as an example for us, though I'm going to draw some lessons from her. No, this is a theological treatment of the providence of God. And so the author rushes on right right into their conversation. Magnanimously, you see there in verse 3, the king asks, what do you want? And he assures her that it's going to be given to her up to half the kingdom. Now, now we heard Herod say that earlier in, in the reading uh, from the Gospels. That, that phrase was common. It is not a literal promise. It is a, it is, it's an idiom. It's a, it's a way of saying, hey, I am disposed to be really generous with you. So don't ask small. I, I like you. I want to please you. So what do you want? What can I do for you? And as you note there, I mean, Esther is prepared with her answer. Only it's not what we expect. Remember in the previous chapter, Mordecai said, hey, you need to go to the, to the king and you need to appeal on behalf of your, of your people. But But that's not what she does. She doesn't ask for mercy for her people. Instead, there in verse 4, you see she asks that the king and Haman will attend a banquet that she's prepared. Now, maybe you were taught that that this is uh, an example of of Esther's timidity, like she's she's about to lose her nerve. And it's going to take her a while to screw up the courage to to, come with the big ask. But I think that's to, to misunderstand this text. I think if we're reading carefully, we, we realize that actually Esther is no naive ingenue. She is no pretty face TikTok influencer. She's a queen. She's a queen. And she has a plan. She has a plan worthy of Rasputin himself. Now, I don't know, maybe, maybe she has learned a thing or two about court intrigue these last five years. She certainly learned a thing or two about her husband. Uh, she, she, she knows her audience. She knows how much he likes to drink. And this banquet that she's prepared has a lot of wine. And immediately, you know, I think we, we, we can't help but think back to chapter 1, right? To, to, to Vashti, who refused to appear before the king after he'd been drinking. And Esther comes along, and she's like the polar opposite. She plans the drinking, she, she has adopted this approach so that, honestly, maybe the king will be even more disposed under the influence of alcohol to her request. Well, when he asks again there in verse 6, whatever you ask will be given to you, whatever you want, even to have the kingdom will be done. When, when he asks again, 
I hope you noticed the almost sexual tension going on, right? She's teasing him. There's a kind of frisson in this. Oh, king. No, no, no. You, you and Haman, come, come back tomorrow to the even better banquet that I've prepared for you. And I'll tell you my request. She is raising the anticipation. She is stoking a desire in him, maybe many desires, but certainly the desire to know the answer to her question. All right, so what do we, what do we make of Esther at this point? Well, of course, Esther is an example to us of risky, bold faith and kind of radical obedience. She puts her life on the line for the sake of her people. She could have put on all those royal robes. She could have done her hair and her makeup and walked in and had her head chopped off. There's real risk here. And she took it. And and we would be remiss not to consider that example for our own lives. Have you considered what it is that you are willing to risk for the sake of the Lord and his cause in this world? I I fear that most of us, we don't even get to Esther's point. You you know, we we don't even get to the question of asking, am I willing to risk my life? We're not sure we're willing to risk our reputation. We're not sure we're willing to risk our social comfort and ease. It's worth asking yourself, what are you willing to risk for the Lord? Because your answer is going to tell you actually quite a bit about who you fear. Do you fear the Lord or do you fear men? But, but I think she's not only an example to us of, of bold faith and radical obedience. Esther is also an example to us of wisdom. Jesus encouraged his followers to be wise. In Matthew 10, 16, he said we should be shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove. And that is exactly what we see here. Esther knows what she's up against. She's up against Haman's hatred. She's up against the king's pride and self-indulgence, which we have seen repeatedly on display. So what does she do? She thinks about the situation she's walking into. Toward Haman, she employs misdirection. Like the last thing she wants Haman to know is that she is Haman's enemy. So she pulls him close. I'm reminded of one president who, when asked why he had certain cabinet members, said, I'd rather have them on the inside urinating out, though he used a different word, rather than the outside urinating in. This is what Esther's doing at this moment. She's brought her enemy close, and that is wise. Toward, Toward the king... Well, she's working overtime. She's working overtime to kind of rekindle that sexual flame. She's working overtime to indulge the very things that she knows he's responsive to, his pride and his senses. And it works, right? The king and Haman are eager to come back for a banquet tomorrow. As we're going to see, Haman walks away in high spirits. You can almost, you can almost imagine him thinking, The queen likes me. Hmm. 
you know, our situation differs from Esther's, of course. But not only are we called as believers to be bold and even risky in our obedience, we are called to exercise wisdom in this world. Whether it's in our dealings with the world or whether it is in difficult situations in the church. I'm I'm often asked, you know, Pastor, how can we pray for you? How can we pray for the elders? Brothers and sisters, pray for wisdom. Pray that the leaders of this church would have wisdom to know how to lead this church in this world and how to lead this church through difficult situations inside of our church. And pray for it for yourself. Are are you someone who is actively trying to cultivate wisdom in your life? How, how How do you do that? Well, I think it starts with prayer, right? James tells us if you lack wisdom, you should ask because the Lord gives it. So it certainly starts with prayer. I think by Esther's example, we also see it comes through good counsel. She had Mordecai. Who's in your life who can give you wise counsel? Who can make, maybe speak against some of your blind spots or your fears? Who can help you understand situations that that you're tempted to sort of just assume, oh, they're just like me, they'll respond just like me, but in fact, they're not going to. And, and so you need a different perspective. But, but I also wonder how many of us just need to become a little bit more observant. We, we walk through life assuming that everybody kind of thinks like us, everybody acts like us, we're the center of the world, but we're not. there's a lot to be gained from just developing your powers of observation. This is partly where wisdom comes from. It's why wisdom comes to those who are older, to those who have more experience. They've been up against things, but they learned the lessons along the way. Are you the kind of person who is learning the lessons life is teaching you? Or are you just pushing on? pushing on through, oblivious. You you see, one of the pathways to wisdom is humility. So grow in your humility about the people in the world around you. Observe them. Learn how this world works so that you can apply God's truth to the various circumstances you find yourself in. And so can be, as Jesus said, Shrewd as serpents, but innocent as doves. Well, we get to the end of this section, and basically we think, man, Esther's got this. She has got this in the bag. See what bold and risky faith accomplishes? Man, if we're just willing to take risks for Jesus, if we're just willing to step out in faith, man, everything's going to go well. There's nothing we can't accomplish for the Lord. Look at Esther, our example. We might think that, but we'd be wrong to think that. Because, second, Haman has a plan too. And it is a death-dealing plan. Let's pick up the story in verse 9. That day Haman left full of joy and in good spirits, But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, 
Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials and the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I am invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife Zeresh and all his friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman. So he had the gallows constructed. All right, so Haman walks out of that banquet feeling on the top of the world there in verse 9. But we're told as soon as he sees Mordecai, he's filled with rage. Why is he filled with rage? Because Mordecai doesn't fear Haman. Haman can almost throttle him then and there. It's a, it's a murderous rage. But he controls himself. He keeps his cool. He heads home. Verse 10. Gathers his wife and his friends about them. He's got like his own counsel, right? And he tells them what a great day he's had. Man, not only am I wealthy way wealthier than all you. Not only do I have lots of sons, way more sons than you, but I have been promoted to the highest position in the kingdom. I am prime minister. There's no one higher than me other than the king himself. But the coup de grace, the cherry on top of it all, the queen herself invited no one but me to join the king at her special banquet. And you know what? She's invited me again tomorrow. Just me and the king and the queen. Man, Haman's stock is rising, right? I mean, he's in good with the royals. Life is good at the end of verse 12. You'd think that would be enough to satisfy him, right? I mean, come on, what more could a guy ask for? Just, just forget about Mordecai. Forget about his disrespect. After all, the plan is set. He knows the plan is set. He made the plan. He got the king to sign off on it. Mordecai is going to die in just a few months, and the king's order cannot be revoked. Shouldn't that be enough? But no. No, Mordecai's future destruction isn't enough because Mordecai's present life is robbing Haman of every joy that he has right now. All satisfaction, that's the word he used, I'm just not satisfied. All satisfaction is drained away because of that one man, Mordecai the Jew, sitting in the king's gate day after day after day. Friends, I can't think of a better picture of what sin does to the human heart than Mordecai right here in verse 13. Haman is consumed by a hatred that is fueled by his own pride. We need to understand this. Sin does not serve us. It enslaves us. 
It abuses us. It is a cruel taskmaster. Sin promises life. And you know what? It halfway delivers. Right? Haman's pride, his greed, his ambition had gotten him a long way. Much further than any of the rest of his friends. But in the end, having achieved really all that he could have ever hoped to achieve in life, because there's no way he could ever be king, having achieved everything, all his pride does is take away his joy in those achievements. And it's not just Haman. It's the same with us. You understand that there's always going to be someone with a better job than you. There's always going to be someone with a nicer car. There will always be someone with a bigger house. There will always be someone with a prettier spouse. There will always be someone whose kids are more successful than yours. There will always be someone who has more friends than you, who has better connections than you, who is more respected than you in your circle of friends. If your contentment is based on your advancement, then you will never be content. If your happiness is rooted in your pride, you will never be happy. This is what sin does. Particularly this this sin of pride. Sin, you see, isn't just what you do. It's not just about breaking rules. It's about the attitude of your heart toward God, toward other people. And friends, it will never satisfy. What's more, sin always leads to more sin. It doesn't lead to more happiness. You you, you see that there in in verse 14, his his wife and his friends urge upon Haman a new plan, a plan now within the plan, a death-dealing plan. Build gallows, make them really high. So nobody can miss that miserable spectacle of Mordecai. Have him, have him hanged in the morning. Go to the king first thing in the morning. Ask the king to execute him. And then go to the banquet and enjoy yourself. Having committed cold-blooded murder. Haman thinks it over and thinks, hey, that's a really good idea. And so he has the gallows built. And he goes to bed dreaming of his revenge and of that sweet banquet that's coming. And it's just that moment that the director yells, cut! Scene's over. Where does that leave us? Yeah, we're left hanging. That's just where this chapter leaves us. It leaves us hanging. We've got these two plans. These two plans that have been put in motion. Neither knows of the other's plans. And we're left wondering, what's going to happen? That's why I love Esther. Like every chapter is a cliffhanger. This is one of the best. Right? Is, is it going to end in tragedy? With Mordecai dead, Esther exposed, and, and all the Jews slaughtered? 
is it going to end in a different kind of tragedy? With Esther saving her people, but losing Mordecai. Because his request gets answered first. Or will somehow, will somehow Esther's plan work? But how can it work? Haman's plan is going to be completed before Esther even gets to put the question to the king. You know where this leaves us as readers? We're left needing to trust the Lord, not our plans. Despite Esther's plan, despite this incredible act of bold and risky obedience, it will not be her obedience that saves the day. But the Lord's providence must intervene. And we're going to see how that happens in future chapters. But we're not going to get ahead of ourselves. We're going to sit right here in the way this chapter demands that we trust the Lord, not our plans. Our hope is not in our obedience. Our hope is not in our risk-taking. Our hope is in the Lord. This, I think, is the main point of this passage. This is where the passage drives us. Our confidence is in God, not our obedience. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't obey. But it very much changes where we put our hope. You know where this applies? This applies to your parenting. You know where this applies? It applies to your marriage. You know where this applies? It applies to your career. Every step of the way, as you raise your kids, as you go about your marriage, as you go about your career, as you just try to walk through this life as a Christian, every step of the way, you are called, Christian, to obey the Lord. You are called to conform your life to his plans, the Lord's instructions. Absolutely. But not once in Scripture are you called to put your confidence in your obedience. Your confidence, your faith is in the Lord. And I think this is really hard for us. I think this is hard for us as parents, right? Because We've been taught to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We've, taught, we've been taught to bring them to church, teach them the gospel. But how often do we take those duties that are ours indeed and turn them into, well, dare I say, we kind of become Catholics, right? We turn those things into sacraments that work ex opere operato, by the working of the work. If I just follow the plan, it will work out. One of the reasons I I wrote the little book on conversion that I did is because when I first got here, I had so many different older parents coming to me and saying, what did I do wrong? I, I did what everybody told me to do. I followed the program. My kids aren't walking with the Lord. We, we, we think about this with our marriages, right? We, we, we think if I just am obedient, I can bulletproof my marriage. If I'm just obedient, 
nothing will ever go wrong in my marriage and it, it will be it will be all, you know, roses and champagne all the way through. And as those of you who have been married more than a week, you know that it's not all roses and champagne. No matter how faithful you've been, no matter how obedient you are. Or you think about your career. And, and, and you say to yourself, I am going to come out as a Christian at work. I am going to be scrupulously ethical. I am going to be faithful. I am going to be kind. I am going to sacrificially love those around me at work. And, and if I do that, for sure the Lord's going to bless me in my career. And then it doesn't happen. You run into a boss that it doesn't matter how good you are, how kind you are, how ethical you are, how productive you are. He doesn't like you. And he puts a roadblock in front of your career. You run into all sorts of situations that are just outside your control. And you begin to think, did I do something wrong? Brothers and sisters, when we ask that question, whether in our parenting, our marriages, our work life, I think it begins to show that we've been putting our confidence in the wrong place. We've been putting our confidence in our plans, which we baptized as God's plans. We've been putting our confidence in our obedience rather than in Christ's obedience for us. Don't take the wrong thing away from this. I'm not saying don't, it doesn't matter if you're obedient or not. Yes, it matters. You should be obedient. The Lord has given us clear instructions. We should follow them. But our hope is not in his instructions. Our hope is in him. How can we be sure that the Lord is worthy of our confidence? Well, the answer is the gospel. As I was reflecting on Esther 5 this week, it it immediately became apparent to me that, you know, in the gospel, we also see two plans at work. There's the Lord's plan to save his people, and there's the enemy's plan. And when you finally get to the cross, it really looks like Satan's plan has overtaken the Lord's plan and, and, and won. He's, he's actually been able to deceive God's people into killing their own Savior. Friends, the providence of God is guided by the wisdom of God. And God, in his wisdom, is even craftier than Satan in his Through Satan's worst efforts, the crucifixion of the only truly innocent man that has ever lived, through Satan's worst efforts, God accomplished his best plan. Satan thought he defeated Christ. Satan thought he defeated God's people by tricking them, deceiving them into rejecting Christ and killing him. But I I love the way C.S. Lewis reflects on that very event. In the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis notes that while the enemy knew a deep magic, a magic that said death is required for sin, 
the Lord knew an even deeper magic. That when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in the traitor's stead, death itself would start working backward. Friends, that's the truth of the gospel. Jesus had no sin. He was no traitor. He was no wicked person. He was truly innocent. And on the cross, he died for sinners like you and like me. And he didn't just stay dead. No, but God raised him from the dead. Why did God raise him from the dead? Because he had done what no one else could do, offer a truly innocent life for the wicked. And friends, on that day, death started working backwards. First for Christ himself. And then for all of us who would repent of our sins and put our hope in God's plan rather than our own. Because when we trust in God, not ourselves, when we trust in what God has done, not what we are doing, then friends, we escape the judgment of hell itself and are brought into life eternal. Subjects of the King. If you're not a Christian, if you don't understand yourself to be a follower of Jesus, this is what we want you to understand more than anything else. Christianity is not calling you to try harder. Christianity is not calling you to clean up your life. Christianity is not giving you an example that is a better way of living life going forward. No, the message of the gospel calls you to give up your plans for your life, to give up your efforts, and to put all your hope in the Lord, whose efforts were more than enough for you. So obey the king. Submit to his plan. But remember, our confidence is in God not our obedience. Trust him to work out his plan for you, which is nothing less than your salvation. Would you join me in prayer? Take, take just a moment and think about those ways that you have been trusting in your own, your own wisdom, your own obedience, your own plans. Maybe in lieu of God's plans or maybe trying to make them God's plans. Just confess that to the Lord. Lord, we confess that at every step of the way, we want to avoid faith. We don't want to trust you. We, we, we want to be able to follow a program. We want to be able to do what needs to be done. We want to be able to follow some sort of plan that guarantees our blessing. And Lord, we confess that in that desire, we are putting ourselves in the place of you. We are acting as if we are gods and we are not. Lord, we pray that you would give us 
the, the insight into our own lives that we could see those ways that we have substituted our efforts for yours, our plans for yours. Lord, we pray that you give us the grace to repent and to put our hope in you. Your love, your wisdom, your grace demonstrated at the cross. And then we ask that it it is that confidence that would then fuel our faithful and obedient lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.